Welcome to the Just Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. On this episode, I'm really excited to have Larry Diamond, CEO of Zip, uh, co-founder, CEO, US CEO, uh, all the things. <laughs> Larry, thanks for making time for this. Thanks so much, Chase. Great to see you. So for people not as familiar with the buy now, pay later world and, and Zip specifically, and um, can you give people a little bit of the background and kind of the, the meteoric rise, especially in Australia before coming over to the States? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Zip is a traditional uh, consumer finance business. Re- the re- reality is, if you kind of look at the, the history of um, financial services and banking, offering credit at the point of sale when, when you go into the store, I think has been w- with us since the last 50, 60 years. So really we're sort of bringing technology to do it better and fairer. And uh, we also love the fact that consumers are no longer going into branches every day to apply for financial services. They live out there in the ecosystem, in this sort of decentralized, um, distributed ecosystem. And, and that's where we live. And so we catch customers at checkout when they're look, looking to book a flight, um, yeah, looking to shop on Amazon and, uh, and, and, and eBay, et cetera. And so we started in Australia in, uh, in 2013 because we realized that this is only really played in big sort of bulky retail predominantly in store and the technology revolution, which we've all enjoyed over the last 10 years, really enabled us to jump very, very quickly, start, you know, understanding customers quickly and in real time, plugging in and, and, and integrating and, um, being very successful. I think the, uh, you know, often timings out of your control. And I think a lot of the factors have, have really helped us, helped us, uh, grow. And the story I like to tell is, uh, we incorporated in, in June of 2013 and we got our first customer really in December of that year. And the story we tell is Naomi was, uh, going through the checkout. It was just before Christmas and she was looking to buy a bicycle for, for her son for, for Christmas. And she's sitting there at the checkout and she had a couple of options. Option number one was she was able to put on her credit card and as we know, 25 days later, get stung with 30, 35% interest. Um, she could have paid from the debit card. And of course she had a lot of expenses with Christmas and shopping and everything, or she could select zip and basically pay in uh, six equal interest free installments. And so when she clicked that button, we knew that we had a, a win, win, win. And, uh, the rest is history. You get the extra excitement of being a public company on top of all the, the startup growth. Um, and obviously, uh, share prices go over the place and, and we know that public markets can invest in a herd. And so I was trying to do the math at, at like the, the absolute peak share price you guys have ever had so far, like it was like $12 and 36 or cents or something. What was the valuation like at that exact moment at the absolute peak? Do you think? We were at a roundabout in USD, uh, I'd say, sure. Yeah, probably, probably five or $6 billion. There's so many questions I have, but let, let's start with this one. When you think about all the challenges of being a startup anyways, and, and going after big incumbents, you know, those, those, uh, big credit card companies make a lot of money and are not, not going to be too happy about giving up market share. What's your mentality, uh, dealing with, you know, the, the sometimes manic emotions of the stock market on top of growing the business? Yeah. So yeah, being listed and we can talk about that is sort of happened by accident. Uh, and, uh, and once we were listed and, you know, we started out life at 20 cents. And as you said, it went all the way to actually $14. Uh, so a crazy rise didn't happen overnight, right? We, we were, as we all know. Um, but one of the theme or approaches that I've always taken is the job of the CEO is is almost to shield the staff and the company 
from the noise of the stock market. And so there was a period there for many years where we just traded sideways, right? Um, there was a period when we went explosive growth all the way up to those crazy levels that we saw and which we'll please God get back to. Uh, and then of course now over the last uh, year and a half, pretty crazy downward downward journey. And we'd, all, we'd always use those moments as an opportunity to come, come to the staff and a bit of a coaching moment, right? So when the share price is going really, really well, never rest on your laurel, right? Focus on the fundamentals, focus on the things that you can control. And, and you know, as Buffett said, over time, the share price will sort of take care of itself. Um, but it, we did love the script, the currency of stock, because at the end of the day, we want our staff to be business owners and to enjoy the fruits of all their labor and really feel like they're an owner in their job. Um, and then also um, with the stock and, you know, and, when we look over time, the amazing growth and reward that a lot of these people had buying houses is just, that to me is actually the most exciting thing. And um, so, and similarly now, when the share price has had a pretty rough last 12 months, uh, pointing to examples post the dot-com crash, where many stocks collapsed 80, 90%, if you look at where they are now, it's sort of a blip. And just keeping the team focused on the fundamental. Focus on the numbers, focus on the data and try and avoid the noise. And that's why myself and Pete, the other co-founder, we try and spend a lot of time shielding the company from uh, from all the noise out there. So as far as your your most recently publicized numbers, what what's kind of the revenue at these days? We printed uh, in, in the last quarter just under $190 million for the quarter. I guess if you multiply that by by four, right? You know, we are... You know, just just over seven hundred million dollars um, at, at annualized revenue. Um, but look, we you know we're pretty pleased with the recent results because we're able to demonstrate to market both growth and also profitability. At the end of the day, we have a growth mindset. That's why we started the business, and being able to deliver both of those was a uh, was a good result. And we've got a long way to go. Can you talk about the advantage of actually having profitability when a number of other startups don't? At the end of the day, um, it is important to have really good unit economics and uh, and it and a pathway to profitability. Well, we're actually very fortunate that, you know, it's gonna be our 10th year, our 10th birthday later this this year. And so we did start out in Australia where um, the world of consumer finance was, was pretty popular. And so we've got a really fantastic blueprint for how to drive that profitability with great unit economics on the gross profit level, driving to that EBITDA profitability as you get the operating leverage uh, coming coming down and you know, US is on a similar, a, a similar glide path. Uh, but you know, clearly when interest rates are low, you've got more time to group profitability. And when, you, and when interest rates are very, very high and the discount rates are very high, you've got to get there a little bit faster to, to keep the valuation at, at an appropriate place. But also it's very important to be in control of your destiny. Okay. And I, and I think that, you know, to give you the flexibility to drive and, um, reinvest profits and, 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 and so forth. And look, as a growth company, we did take advantage of the uh, strong stock market. We would typically raise capital, invest in growth, deliver the growth, the share price would react and you'd sort of continue that, that story. Uh, so we've had to pivot and adjust some of our thinking in this time, but the fundamentals have always been the same. We've been lucky enough to have, I think maybe almost 30 CEO founders on the show who have grown zero over a billion, it's, you know, regardless of where the, this the valuation is today. And so I've kind of got some standard questions. I, I would actually love to see how your answers line up with some of theirs. That's okay. Um, so when you think about the idea of product market fit, how do you define that? Good, good question. I mean, I like to talk about, uh, you know, there's sort of 
minimum viable product. We like to talk about minimum lovable products, right? It's got to, it's got to be feasible um, to be able to deliver. It's got to be viable, but customers have to want it. And I, and I think for us, when I when I go back to the story around uh, around Naomi, um, we had a hypothesis that we could deliver uh, installment credit at the checkout with a certain onboarding and a certain product construct profile, uh, and uh, we're able to validate that. And so I think. We, we continued down the journey of, okay, we had one data point. We're going to need to get a lot more data points before we feel like we're out of the woods. And, um, and we did that for quite a while, I'd say, until we listed, right? I, I don't think we had true product market fit uh, for about two years. And it's important to be able to feel that confidence deep in your belly before you go out for the next um, fundraise. Uh, so I think it's sort of like a critical mass of customers and when you start to also hear them, you know, this sort of crescendos because you start to hear them talk about the positive, the positive aspects of it. Um, and, uh, and then also you start to hear, meet people on the street who also validate that too. But you can probably move a lot quicker. Uh, but I'd say it, it took us six months to get there and probably two years to get, you know, really the confidence to, to take this global. When you think about how describing that feeling of like that, that confidence in the belly, right? If someone else is trying to say like, man, I feel like we're getting close. They're, ch- they're trying to judge whether they really got it or not. What, what kind of counsel would you have or what, how would you help them think that through to really, you know, be objective about it? I mean, I, I think the first point is trying to work out, um, p- people probably don't do enough user research and testing early on and being very um, maniacal about that, right? I think we did it organically. But I would even say when we started, we weren't as customer first as we are today. Um, interviewing the customers, actually asking for the feedback as opposed to just listening to your own bullshit, right? Uh, and so I think implementing that very early on where you have almost like a laboratory experiment. So you have customers that aren't your customers, you have customers that, that are your customers, and you spend the time to ask them the questions, what they like, what they'd improve. And so uh, that alongside, that's sort of number one. Number two, is around building that MLP. Um, you should only do what you need to do and no more to get you to the next gate because if you do too much up front, you're going to run out of cash. Um, and, uh, and equally, if you don't do enough, you, you're not going hit to the, hit the mark. So I think being really explicit in the minimum elements that you need um, to get to that first gate around the, you know, it's got to be feasible. You've got, you've got the viability calcs and, uh, and make sure it's uh, desirable and then move to the next stage of the product development and product expansion um, and try and be very laser focused on the one problem to solve or the one idea um, rather than trying to con- conflate it with, uh, with many aspects. It's easier said than done, but I think keep sort of challenging yourself um, to, to really be extremely focused on the problem that you're, you're trying to solve. When you talk, when you think about this idea of, of actually talking to the customers, this is actually a common theme. Multiple people on the show, uh, like uh, last Thursday, a week ago today, we had the the guy who started ButcherBox here in the states, and you know, just just shy of six hundred million in revenue this year. Said very same thing that like as time went on, he got more and more interested in listening to the customer and actual conversations, and and less like worried about his own opinion, more worried about the customer opinion, right? Uh, what does that look like for you? Is it is it digital surveys? Is it actual phone call conversations, in-person conversations, all of the above? Yeah, I think to keep yourself honest, you've heard the saying, kill the hippo, right? Kill the highest paid person's opinion. Particularly, I think founders, 
because you might have hit it off the mark with that product market fit in that six to six months to sort of 24 months. But the grounds are always shifting, right? The macro environment's changing, consumer preferences are changing. And I would say it took a while from new people joining who wanted to almost not take what we said for granted and keep us honest, who then spend time on what's the EVP, what are customers saying, what the research saying, and start having listening techniques all along the user journeys from top of funnel all the way down. And I'd say it's taken us probably nine years to actually get there, right? Uh, and certainly while we were building in the first few years, you didn't really have enough time because you're wearing, wearing so many hats, you're fundraising, you're doing customer service, product strategy, culture, leadership. Uh, you're not spending, we, and I was, I, I was a first time founder as well. So we weren't spending um, enough time. So now what it looks like, I mean, today I just came from a customer immersion session. We're here at Zip HQ in NYC. We had two two hour sessions. We had eight customers in, in each. We had a facilitator. Um, they were in person, but we had a lot of our team that's remote listening in. And it was unbelievable. Everyone just said to hear customers speak about the product lines to either validate decisions that we, we'd made in the past or give us some, or help us solidify some of our, you know, thinking or what some team members might be advocating for and others not. It really creates the kind of groundswell. And that is fantastic ammunition when you go to product season and work out what you're going to prioritize, right? And I said to the uh, the host today, when you come in three months time, if we haven't acted on one of those things, shame on us. So that's that's sort of one piece. I think the other piece is as you break up the product, make sure that every user journey is mapped and tracked. You've got the data and you're sort of, and you got the quality, you got the quant, you also got the quality sort of pulsing along. And that can be usertesting.com. That could be picking up the phone and talking to a few customers um, uh, around that. It could be um, interviews as, as, as well, but you actually have to put it into the culture. And the sooner you can do that as a startup, it just becomes part of the DNA. Instead of having to go back and retrofit um, the thinking or reorganize teams along the customer journey. Um, and then finally, customer service. I mean, that is the coalface. They're listening to customers every single day. And when we started the business, we had customer service and products on the same level, right? And we, we came up with this thing called the wall of pain. And that was basically customer service, putting on the wall, the good and the bad. And then we'd, 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 meet, we'd meet at the wall, right? Product managers, customer service, and you've got the empathy and the pain being transported to the product folk, right? And asking them to kind of fix it. So many ways to do it, but uh, I think being intentional about it right from the outset uh, is, keeps you honest. Okay, uh, brings up many questions. First, how many on the team now? We have about uh, just over a thousand staff um, globally. Um, next, when you get those people together in a room, are you compensating them a little bit to show up for two hours or what does that logistically look like? So you mean on the, on the customer research front? Immersion. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we are giving them some small bounties to come in. Um, so, you know, question is, is there selection bias in it? I know the, the hyper users, but we, we do find a little incentive works, um, $20, um, $100, depending on, on how much time we actually need them bought. But I can tell you, they all were incredibly active. Um, and you had a whole, and we also make sure we have a, a cross section of different individuals in the room, those that have the product, those that are, you know, Hyper users, those are, those that have never used the product, those that are using competing products as well. 
one of the things that you brought up earlier a little bit about this idea of minimum lovable product and, and making sure you've got some product market fit before the next fundraise. I mean, it is such a critical thing. Founder CEOs are always told like Cardinal Thin is running out of money. So if you don't have enough customers right now, you better raise some more. Uh, and, and you talked a little bit about your strategy there. What, what kind of advice would you have for, for CEO founders who are um, thinking about getting better at fundraising? Yeah, the balance, the power between fundraising when to go and grow. I think, you know, what's, what's unique, by the way, about the Zip model, and uh, I think it was a quote, I forget who said it, that product is king, distribution is God, um, right? Lowercase g. Um, but this idea that, uh, you know, we integrated to merchants, merchants bring customers, and that's sort of how we drove our customer acquisition. So I, I do think finding your, your, your distribution mode in some shape or form is is really smart rather than jumping onto Facebook and Google and all the paid advertising because it's become hyper, hyper competitive. Um, you know, our, our fundraising journey was very peculiar, right? Um, in, in the sense that we did a seed round and then we listed. Okay. So I wouldn't say that we'd use our, our path as a journey. We pitched, um, to get that seed round, which was $170,000, I must've pitched. 40 to 60 different investors. And I remember being, so, and then this was the first uh, company that I was starting, first time actually raising capital, had come from in investment banking. So I had the, the boring pitch decks, um, but, and was really disheartened in the beginning when I wasn't getting bites. Uh, and when I kind of look back at that journey and finally raising the 170 grand from the Fool's family and friends, what you realize is that how important pounding the pavement and having those 40, 50 conversations were in really refining the value proposition, what we're working on. And so by the time you've done that, you've also become an expert at answering all the tough questions, right? You might've stuffed it up the first time, you practice a few times in, and you get better and better and better. And so, you know, the, the journey is, is really important. And as long as yeah, we would, we would come back after every presentation, myself and Pete, the other co-founder, and we do a debrief, right? As a self-learning organization, as an self-learning individual, what can we do better? How could we have answered that a little bit better? And that continuous cycle, as long as you can just demonstrate that improvement, um, helps you get there and helps you validate internally that you are extremely committed, have the endurance to actually give this, give this a go. Um, and as I say, we, we ended up listing because we couldn't actually raise any money privately. So we can get into that in a second. Uh, how much did you raise when you listed, by the way? Uh, we raised $5 million of, 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 of equity. Uh, and look, the challenge for us is as a financial services business, particularly on the credit side, is we needed both equity capital and also debt capital, which, you know, which for an early stage business um, makes that a lot more challenging. So we did uh, 170 grand. We then raised some sort of private debt money along the way for the actual loan book. And then uh, 5 million when we listed with a, a $20 million facility at the time. And then basically the stock market, we wouldn't be here today without the power of the stock market, the ability to get access to shareholders. And each year that, that, that transgressed, um, that, that progressed rather, we went, you know, 5 million, next year was 20 million, next year was 40 million, the next year was 80 million, the next year was 160 million. And we got to 400 million. And so that journey and, 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 and that support uh, was, was, was very powerful. If you think about the mashup of 
of what creates profits. And, and this is just a theory. Uh, there's a Northwestern professor who wrote this book called The Formula that I kind of like, where he, he believes that the, the reward you receive from your community, so if your business, the, the profits you're making, right? It's a combination of your performance plus your industry or your community's opinions about your performance. What, what's your reputation? What's your credibility in the space? Um, when you think about having a minimum level lovable product, but then getting people to find out. How, how do you think about this idea of, you know, positioning Zip and, and getting into the customer mind and having merchants want you in their store and, and this idea of getting the word out in the way that builds the kind of reputation that you want? What's, what's your principles or mindset there? And, and what does brand mean? I mean, when you start a business, you're very focused on product because you're, you're solving a problem. Uh, you probably shouldn't occupy yourself too much about brand other than to say, what is the DNA of, of ourselves? What are the values that we're trying to instill in the business? What are the values that we're trying to reflect in the product? I think they are one and the same. All right. And so, uh, sometimes though, we're not very explicit about those. They just happen oh, organically. And, you know, I do think today that the zip brand is a manifestation of the people inside zip and. We could have done a better job, I think, of telling that story publicly over time instead of doing it through lots of hand-to-hand -hand combat, right? Talking to merchants, them saying, oh, these guys are pretty cool. They know what they're talking about. Think with the customers when they go through how we deal with the customer experience, really focusing on that and making sure that we're resolving the issue. If they have any challenges, we are, we are feeding uh, backwards. Um, I think we are, you know, so we really built the, uh, the brand off a logo that we did on 99 design, uh, the language we used to, to describe who we are on the website was, was pretty poor. And it wasn't until six years later that we actually created the logo, tried to define, uh, who we are. And it was really all the ingredients were, were, uh, actually there. The other unique thing about zip is that our branding is living out there in the community. So when you are uh, walking past a store, you can see us, yeah, piece of collateral in the store. Uh, when you go through the checkout, you can see us on the product detail page. So we're working very closely with a large surface area. And so I think one thing is, is, um, customers get comfortable with certain brands. They implicitly get comfortable with us because that brand has basically blessed and, and endorsed us. I think that that has helped drive a lot of the virality and awareness. Uh, the customer service, I think is really important. And, and, um, just as also the candidate experience is really important, you know, red carpet in red carpet on the way out. And I think all these touch points, uh, if they're consistent and you have a, you do it your way, right. It wasn't gonna have a different way, a different flavor of sort of who they, who they are and really focusing on, on all those touch points, making them congruous to the, to the brand, uh, it then, you know, that, that, that compounds over time. You don't, you don't realize it, but it, it sort of compounds um, over time. And then ultimately, as you get bigger, how do you use the platform to sort of tell that story? Uh, and I think we still have a long way to go, right? I, I don't think we do the best job at sort of telling our story. And so we're focusing a lot more now on brand purpose, codifying a lot of those elements, and then trying to bring them to life across, across the user journey. So as you focus on this now, this idea of, of telling your story, what are principles or what's your strategy as you think about that going forward? There's probably a combination of elements. Uh, one is having workshops internally with the teams to really help them also 
explain who you are, what are the key tenants of the business, what are the values that sort of resonate with them. So I think co-creating it with your team is, is, is really, really helpful. And then getting each team to take those values and principles and embed them into both the how, what are they doing in their own team? What's, what's the subculture in those teams? And then also how do they bring that to life, those values in the product or, or whatever they are, they, they are working on. Uh, and, and, and then ultimately also um, performance management internally. When you go and sit down every year, you kind of qualify and grade everyone on how they're going. And then, you know, and that goes from product marketing, how the website shows up, how a customer experience. Uh, and I think once we have that in place, so, and, and we, I think we've done a reasonable job at it, um, then at least we, we have a consistent brand, a consistent way of either talking to our customers in tone of voice or how they feel when they sign up and, and, and get approved or, or rejected. When you think like you've got this collateral in store, you've got these opportunities for customers there. Um, but when you think about amplifying that, what's your thought process in as you're deciding between a mix of maybe like, you know, paid advertising, content marketing, like more organic and, and trying to make decisions about how much you're going to do of each of those. Look, in, in this climate, we have reduced a lot of our paid advertising uh, and also a lot of just the brand advertising, uh, which has not as not as easy to sort of correlate the, the investment with, with the return, but you still need to do it. It's almost, you know, 50% of advertising um, pays off, but you just don't know which 50% it is. So you still need to do some elements of the brand and, and awareness advertising. I do feel though, if you are incredibly focused on user journeys and UX, you should almost do that first before you start investing in a whole range of uh, advertising activities. People take for granted that, okay, we're gonna do this whole bunch of advertising, we'll get the customers to decide, but then there's a huge amount of drop off. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I would be, and again, doing this early on is, is, is every, all these user journeys, um, you know, draw it out on a big wall, the entire user journey from top of funnel all the way through to sign up, then to the, you know, day zero, day 30, day 90, what does a model customer look like? Really understand that. Then it's, then as you spend the marketing dollars, you can really track which sources are most effective. What's the LTV of those customers often you get an, and often you're sort of building and flying at the same time. So you're just throwing money at this stuff while you, it's okay to do both. I, I definitely advocate for doing both because you're not going to have all the answers up front. We, because the uniqueness of the uh, buy now, play sector is we spend more of our marketing dollars with our merchant partners um, because that's really the, the top of funnel. They then sign up at checkout, they come into the app, but it's how we get some checkout to download app to then make a purchase and start using the app. Um, and so a lot of it also goes to owned own channels and, and content to work out how to, how to get them moving from each, each of those gates and different teams work on different parts of those, those journeys. Uh, and yeah, we invest obviously point us out collateral. That's really important. Even if we don't get a sign up, it's still a brand impression, right? Which is, which is, which is really important to us. We would like to do more above the line advertising. Um, in this climate, we're just being much more focused on, on the key aspects of, of that user journey, but we're still spending a reasonable amount in marketing. When you think about the mix there of, of like, whether it's, you know, somebody, somebody else's platform, whether YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram versus your own, you know, whether that's email lists or your own blog or, or things like that. How do you think about that mix? I would say because we, our life started out 
really on the merchant, on these platforms, we really optimized those platforms and that distribution. Uh, we almost didn't spend as much on the direct to consumer advertising. So I would say we're still a student of the D2C uh, consumer, consumer advertising. Uh, we are this year going to be spending, uh, and that's, you know, not money necessarily, but, but time, effort, and energy on, uh, on web, on SEO, on a lot of content. We want to put a lot more into the community around financial literacy and financial well-being. this idea of, and that kind of goes to brand as well. We, we, not, we might not be signing up a customer directly, but we're building trust and credibility and hopefully they, they join um, over time. So it's definitely been a lot more weighted to the, the retailer platform. And I would almost say 10, 10 to 20% maybe on, on direct. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So my guess is you've got some big enterprise client that like, if they take you on and now all their stores have zip, that that's, that's a good thing for you. Right. Um, what kind of advice do you have for, for founder CEOs on, uh, on landing big enterprise accounts? Uh, look, definitely an endurance game. I think you also have to understand it's, you know, the big guys are great. It also can be a little bit difficult to deal with too. So, um, maybe you don't need to chase the shiny toy, right? That there are other ways that, you know, we've found, for example, that, uh, small emergence, uh, you know, when we started Zip, one of, one of the things we said, we want to sort of democratize, uh, the access of interest-free solutions to the small and medium-sized business population. Cause this was really only afforded to the big end of town. Now with Shopify and WooCommerce and BigCommerce, you can plug and pay and, and get access. And, and in truth, some of those channels are actually more profitable, you would say out the gate than necessarily a, a big, a big, um, merchant. So I think it's a bit of a double edged sword, uh, where the economics might not be as exciting as, as, uh, other channels. Um, the time to market can be a lot longer and the integration can be maybe a little bit more challenging. Uh, so I wouldn't bet the farm on the big end of town. I would have sort of a diversified strategy, right? Uh, and we've done this in the past. We integrate with a bank once we spent six months integrating with a bank so that in the banking app, in one click, you could sign up for a zip account. Um, you know, we had engineering teams, huge amounts of 11th hour, this bank decided to change one of the legal terms that was, a uh, a, a breach of our trust yeah, and the whole project died. So like that's, that's just time, life and oxygen. We're never going to get back. Um, but I think in general, be a thought leader. Um, when you go and pitch, you know, what's the problem that we're trying to so solve, show that you're actually, um, an expert in the field. Uh, at, you're not just selling a, a widget, for example. I think that is how, and see with the big end of town, you also need to sell map multiple layers in the organization to really drive groundswell. So just be careful is, is what I would say. Well, a couple of other subjects. L let's talk on, uh, you know, zero to billion advice. Um, recruiting. People are always talking about a great team. What, what kind of thoughts do you have on, on recruiting the kind of team that can help you get over that billion dollar mark? We've had a lot of experience with people over the years. Um, you know, at one stage we had probably 1800 people on the, uh, on the staff and plenty of turnover over, over the years. Uh, it's, it's important, depending on where you are on the journey, you need different people for different stages of the journey. And you've got to be really careful that if you have someone who is, it's too early, that's a bad thing. And if you have someone who's too late, that's also a bad thing. And so in, in a hyper growth business, making sure that I'd say someone can stick around for 
18 months is probably, can they, can they take you from here to 18 months time, what the business is going to look like? But probably not three or five years, because that means you're probably overdoing it here as well. And that individual might not be able to stretch. So um, try and have a view that's 18 months ahead. Can this person help you get there? Um, the other piece of feedback is as founders, when you start a business, it's, it's one happy family, right? It's more family than sort of high performance team. So, you know, if, if Uncle Barry not doing too well, you keep Uncle Barry on the bus, right? Because it's close, it's, it's tight. And so the accountability layer, it's really hard. And I would say when, I, when we go back to the early beginnings of Zip, I wouldn't say that we were doing a great job holding people to account uh, as, as well as we could. And so that's, that's a really important measure. It's also ensuring that people have got, we found that the most successful people in our business over time have got incredible self-awareness really strong self-awareness. So when you give them what we call zip back, fast, fair and transparent feedback, they can take that on, they can acknowledge it and they can just do a little bit better. We only need to do a lot, just a little bit better. And that means that as an individual, as a team, as a company, we can continually move forward and show that, that growth. And I don't believe that everyone can go the distance. I hold that um, standard to myself as well. If, if at any moment I can't take the company to the next gate, I can't level up. It might be my turn to move aside. Um, so we've seen people come and go. Um, there's a lot that have been with us since the beginning, might I say. Um, and uh, and so investing in the people front is really important. The, the other uh, cool thing that we discovered early on, the network uh, is often very, very powerful. We had, uh, when we set up our first debt facility, uh, the, the uh, lawyer who was working with us had a, a daughter who was studying commerce law and asked if she can get a job at the startup, right? And we said, fantastic. She came, she joined the customer service team, you know, in, incredibly smart, learned the business intimately at that customer service coalface. You learn what's good about the product, what's bad about the product, you get to know the culture. She loved it. She told five of her friends, they told five of their friends, and this became you know, a bit of a secret weapon for us where it almost became a sort of in incubator where individuals came in off the street, so to speak, learned the culture, developed deep customer empathy. Um, so that was palpable that they needed to solve problems. And they moved into product strategy, risk, finance. And, you know, it's been, uh, you know, a, a great success story for us. Um, maybe a follow-up there. In your mind, what are the sort of breakpoints where things really change? Like, between uh, five employees and a thousand, it's like at 30, things were really different or at 75, things are really different. And then at 250, they're really different again. Or you, where in your mind, where are some of those, those big changes? The, 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 these breaking points are really real. Uh, and you almost, it, it doesn't happen on a day, right? It's sort of, you start to get this feeling and then there's just a moment where you say, all right, we, we sort of have to, have to act on it. So we started out, I'd say there were sort of five of us after a year or so that were really the core. Um, we then grew to 30. Um, there was another breaking point, then probably about 120. Uh, and what we found was that you are wearing, you're always wearing multiple hats. So when you first start the business, you're all doing all the role, customer service, product, UX, design, engineering. You're in this boiler room. Everyone knows what's going on. So. Then you start to introduce the next layer and things often fall through the cracks as you sort of hand, 
hand over these, these uh, hats. Um, it's also why we came up with one of the values early on, own it. Own it because even if it has to tra traverse multiple functions to get there, just make sure the, the job um, gets, gets done. And, and, and I found that we, we started to see IP that we had, for example, starting to vanish, people doing things differently. And, 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 and equally when, when we got to um, 100, uh, I don't think product as an organization really existed until that 30 to 100 space, right? The concept of like, because we were all product managers, we were all doing all, all of these things. We never had product design, we never had UX, we never had research. Um, when we got to 100, we also realized you can't just have one, one product team. You actually have to build it out across the, uh, the, the user journey. Um, and what we've also tried to do is go back to the startup. Because the startup with the five people in the room, decision velocity, we are Zip, so we want to be making decisions super fast. So decision velocity, um, decentralized decision making, all of these running autonomous teams, there's a lot of power in that. So how do you maintain those principles? as you get bigger, as you get bigger when the company keeps breaking. And so we would, as we re-looked at the format, how do we break the company down into smaller teams to retain those principles where we have autonomous teams focused on this part of the organization, running on microservices so they can ship multiple times, use you know, experiment and validated learning um, and run their own show against an, uh, an, an OKR. When, when we went global, it completely broke because what's global, what's local, um, that was pretty, that was pretty uh, gnarly. So I think org design is a constant um, thing that's on the brain. We're, we're always looking at are we, are we organized correctly? And also there's, there's a utopian state, this idealistic state, but you also have to be mindful of who are the leaders that we have in the business. And really, it can be a target state, but if you haven't got the right leader in that particular piece of the business, um, people leadership is often more important. The how is often more important than the what. If you haven't got great leadership there, and so you might consolidate certain parts together that might seem a bit weird, but actually that works for you guys because you've got a great leader there. They can help drive the agenda, drive the right culture. Uh, and so the, the, the people management side of the business over the years have, has got a lot more focus. Um, and we're still, like that, if I think about the year ahead, we're solving for the, the lowest common denominator where you've got one manager, you know, manager managing even one person. If we can get it right there, uh, you know, that's, that's a, you know, that sort of compounds through the organization. <laughs> that's great advice. Great insight. Um, you know, one of the things that you brought up is this idea of kind of scaling yourself, like that you need to be the right guy to lead at the next level. And, uh, when you think about that challenge, you know, like you, you said, you know, it's first your first business. <laughs> and so uh, thinking about this, like from here going forward, when you think about growing yourself to be the right guy over the coming years, what does that look like? Or how do you think about that? I think, I think you have to be very self-aware. Um, areas that are blind spots for you, areas that are feeling difficult, areas that you need to grow into. And uh, think about, do we have the right people in the business? So can we can we bring in experts, areas um, to really help us acquire that knowledge, learn that knowledge? Also being quite intentional with mentorship and peer peer discussions, right? To to kind of validate what you're doing. You know, have those tough conversations, or even just the, the counselling sessions with friends, uh, peers, 
I've, you know, I've, I've mentored back home as well. Our board actually is a fantastic mentor board, I would say, for, for where we are today, where you've got, you know, team of us who have been building the business, but then you've got those that are 10, 20, 30, 30 years older, and they don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers either. It's, it's this sort of, you know, you, you find it in between, right? And so uh, that to me is, is forming a huge part of the, the growth going forward. Having conversations with the board, talking to my mentors and talking to peers, and then the management team itself have really open discussions. And then the final piece of the puzzle is what is your own personal performance plan? Now we expect it of our staff. What are you going to do? What are the areas that you're going to focus on uh, in, in the coming year and writing it down, right? Setting yourself the goals and, uh, and working on that. Well, I like that answer. Uh, as we're kind of winding down here, any, um, well, for starters, uh, if people want to download the app or go to the website, where should they be going? www.zip.co. Uh, you know, we are a cool financial app. We've got a long way to go. We need all the support. And we want the customers so you can give us feedback and we can, and we can make this product uh, better. We're also listed on, uh, we're actually listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, so you can find us there as, as well. And we put out investor uh, reports quarterly and, and every half year and uh, full year. Maybe as we kind of wind down then, um, what's, a, what's a zero to billion lesson that we didn't talk about that you'd have for, for a founder CEO? Good, good question. Um, you know, I think, for us, we would have been incredibly successful to build a business from a blank canvas to $20 million, right? We, we would have high five it would have been, we would be immensely proud, um, uh, yeah, as proud as we are today. But when we got to that gate, we feel that we hadn't really realized our potential. Um, and, and so we went, okay, well, let's, when we get to a hundred million, then we got to a billion, eight billion, um, uh, 8 billion Aussie and went to 14 different markets. I think the point is, if you don't feel like you've realized your potential, um, you, you must keep going. It's not really about, for some it is, but it's more the journey than the destination, right? There might be a great point of gold at the end. And of course we work, you know, maniacally focused on delivering returns for our shareholders, but what you learn along the way is going to be way more valuable, uh, in terms of personal growth and development than when you get to the end. And so if you keep that in mind, every day is pretty exciting. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but every day is going to lead you to a new development and new learning. Uh, and so reflect on that, iterate, and uh, enjoy the ride. <laughs> I love it. Thanks again for making time to do this. It's been great. No, thanks, Jess. Great conversation.